Well, if you've been with us uh, since early June, we've been in this sermon series that we're calling Songs for the Journey. Songs for the Journey. And it's based on the Psalms of Ascent. The Psalms of Ascent are uh, a beautiful collection of 15 psalms in the back of the Psalter. Uh, And they were the songs that apparently God's people sang every year, three times a year, as they made their way to Jerusalem to worship at the temple and to feast with God's people there. And so what we've been saying um, is that these two are our songs. As we study these psalms together, we're reminded that we, like them, are also pilgrims. We, like them, are also on a journey. The life of the Christian pilgrim is not a life of comfort, is not a life of uh, settling down, but it's actually a life of progress. It's a life of movement. As Paul said uh, in Philippians, we are straining forward to what lies ahead on the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. We are pilgrims. That's what it means to be a disciple. Uh, and, I, and I think I've just been struck again and again how fitting this is for this time, this strange, strange time that we're living in, uh, because I know that many of us are tempted, I know I am, to want to go back to the way things were before. And yet, God calls his pilgrims never to go back, but to always go forward, to go forward to what lies ahead, to whatever it is that God has in store for us. So we remember that we are not at home in this world as it currently stands, but that we as pilgrims are always pressing forward towards Jesus and towards his kingdom that is to come. So this psalm that we're looking at this morning, Psalm 126, is one of my favorites. Um, it dares to say something pretty radical because it, it, it dares to say that one of the key marks of the Christian pilgrim is joy. That's why we're calling it the joy song, that one of the key characteristics of the person who is on the discipleship journey is that you will be marked by joy. The Lord has done great things for us, and we are filled with joy, it says in verse 3. Now, I, you know, I've been your pastor for some years now, and I hope that you know by now um, that I am no uh, Christian expert. Um, I am no graduate-level disciple. Um, I'm, I'm struggling along right in the thick of things with you. I'm, I'm battling all my own demons and my own, my own darkness. Uh, and this is one of those topics where I just have to just come out and say and confess to you that I feel like a bit uh, like I'm a, 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 in sort of kindergarten when it comes to this particular topic of joy. It's, it's one of those things that I just long to learn more about and long to experience more myself. I'm not coming today as a teacher. I'm coming as a fellow student. Joy has always evaded me. Um, I've always wrestled what it means to be a joy-filled person. I think part of it is my uh, somewhat melancholic temperament. Um, Some of it is just struggling to even know what joy means. Some of it is just, frankly, Christian immaturity. Um, But I want you to know is that I am actively asking myself right now in this season of my life, what does it mean for me to be a person of joy when life is hard? And I want to invite you to ask that question with me this morning. What does it mean for us to be people of joy when life is hard? What is joy? I mean, I think we have to be clear what we're talking about when we say joy. 
I, I'm interested to hear maybe later, maybe you could even email me and tell me um, what you said when you guys talked earlier in the service about what is the difference between joy and happiness. I think it sounds simple, but it's actually kind of a tricky question. Happiness, I would say, is the experience of emotional pleasure because of a positive circumstance or event. You know, happiness is eating a, a, a beautiful uh, ice cream cone on a hot day. Uh, happiness is having a, a great meal with dear friends. Happiness is uh, looking at your bank account, logging in, seeing you got paid. You know, <laughs> happiness is, is the experience of emotional pleasure triggered by a positive circumstance. And happiness is wonderful. Happiness is beautiful. But happiness is not the same thing as joy. Joy is different from happiness because joy is not dependent on any circumstance. Joy, here's how I would put it, joy is a deep stability of the soul. Joy is a deep stability of the soul. It is a, is a state of the spirit that remains buoyed up in hope regardless of the circumstance. I want you to think for a moment, just imagine uh, the person in your mind that you think of when you think of joy. Who is the most joyful person that you have ever known? Can you picture that person right now? My guess is, I'm not talking about a happy person, I'm talking about a joyful person. My guess is, is that the person you are thinking of has experienced significant suffering. My friend Rashad told me that the most joyful person that he has ever known is a dishwasher in the University of Richmond cafeteria. It's, you know, over the years of being a student there and working there, he's just gotten to know this man and he's heard his story and he's heard about how he suffered. He's seen the way that he does not exhibit any traditional marks of a successful American life. He's heard about what it was like for him to grow up as a black man in the Jim Crow South. He's heard about all of his loss, all of his pain. And yet, Rashad said, this is the most joyful person that he has ever met. That he just radiates this infectious joy. When I think of the most joyful person I've ever met, I think of someone that some of you also knew as well, and that is um, a dear sister in Christ who has now gone to be with the Lord, and that is uh, Janice Sumter. Uh, Janice Sumter um, is the most joyful person that I have ever met. She just radiates and exudes, brimming over with joy. Uh, and yet, when she was a fairly young woman, Janice developed muscular dystrophy, which eventually crippled her entire body, rendering her nearly a quadriplegic. And yet every Sunday, um, she sat just right out there in the center of the sanctuary. Uh, she would crane her neck back and just sing with all of her might, joyfully to God. Uh, I never heard her complain. She was always praising God. And even after her dear husband Bill died, after 50 years of marriage, she was still just exuding joy. So what we learn from people like this, people like Janice, people like Rashad's friend, maybe someone who you were thinking of, is that joy is not the absence of sorrow. Joy is not the absence of suffering. Actually, joy, what joy is, it's the presence of deep stability in the midst of sorrow, in the midst of suffering. It is irrepressible hope that endures even in weeping. In fact, in a very mysterious way, something that I don't quite understand, it seems to be true that in some cases, the deeper the suffering, the greater the joy. For some people who, who are so 
living in unity with Christ, their own suffering connects them with the suffering of Jesus, thus creating in them a resilience of soul that would not be possible without the suffering. That's what joy is. Not a fleeting experience of pleasure, not the absence of pain, but a deep stability of soul in any circumstance. Those who sow in tears will reap with songs of joy. Verse five. So what I want to suggest to you, my beloved friends, is that this quarantine is complicated and difficult and frustrating and sometimes agonizing season that we're all living through is actually a, a test of joy. It's testing your joy quotient in your life. It's easy to say that you know joy when life's going really great and when you're on vacation and when the stock market is doing well and when your kids are compliant and your health is good and everything's going great. But when the future is uncertain and you don't know what's around the corner and you don't know what holds for your job and you find your everyday life to be mind-numbing and you feel like you're going nuts and things feel unbearable at times. See, that is the real test to see. Is there any real deep happiness in your life that is not dependent on your circumstances or your career or your money or your pleasures? Is there a deep stability of your soul that goes deeper than any circumstance? Is there any joy down there? Well, how do we get that? How do we cultivate joy when life is hard? Well, that's what this psalm's about. That's what this psalm is offering us. We don't know who this guy was or what he was going through, but whatever it was, it was hard. His request in verse four is for God to restore what had been lost. And so we don't know if it was some kind of famine. We don't know if it was some deep struggle or some profound valley. But this is a psalm about how people in the valley fight for joy. How do people in the valley fight for joy? How do we cultivate joy when life is hard? Let's look at a couple of things that this psalmist does and how we can do it too. Okay? So you might say uh, a subtitle of the sermon could be How to Fight for Joy. How to fight for joy. And number one, we see the first half of the psalm that what this person do and what we can do is remembering what God has done. The first way to fight for joy. Remember what God has done. Look at verse one. The psalmist says this. When the Lord brought back the captives to Zion, we were like those who dreamed. Our mouths were filled with laughter and our tongues with songs of joy. Now, what he's doing is he's remembering something that God did in the past. We don't know exactly what he's remembering. He could be remembering the exodus when God delivered his people out of Egypt and drowned the Egyptian army in the sea. He could be remembering um, the, the stories of David and when he, re- he, he rescued David and the remnant of God's people from the warring Philistines. Uh, he could re- be remembering the Babylonian captivity when God brought back his people from exile. It doesn't really matter what specific event he is remembering. What the point is, though, is that he is in every case remembering how God acted miraculously to restore and to redeem his people. When it looked like everything was lost, certain defeat, God miraculously snatched his people into victory from the jaws of death. And there's no way that it could have happened except for God. I love the message translation. It seemed like a dream, too good to be true, but God did it. He's remembering 
the acts of God. So here's what we learn here. We learn that one of the ways that we fight for joy is to remember the works of God. Remember the acts of God, the things that God has done for us in the past. I love what Eugene Peterson says in his book, uh, Long Obedience. He says, we fill our minds with the stories of God's acts, A-C-T-S. We fill our minds with the stories of God's acts. We remember what God has done. Have you ever noticed when you read the Bible carefully how often the Bible and God exhort us to remember? Remember that you were slaves in Egypt. Remember how I provided you for you in the wilderness. Uh, Remember his miracles and judgments. On my bed, I remember you. I think of you throughout the watches of the night. See, when we do that, when we reflect and recall and remember what God has done, we nurture gratitude. We cultivate gratitude faith. We recollect the goodness of God so we can apply all of those things again to the problems of the present. We remember what God has done. So how do you do this in your own life? Well, first of all, uh, you can remember ways that God has acted faithfully in your life. Do you remember moments when God just showed up for you? Uh, Do you remember moments when God came through, when God provided When God intervened, uh, when God acted, even in painful and difficult circumstances to bring about a good that you did not expect. Maybe he came through with a financial provision. Maybe he healed a relationship. Maybe he comforted you in sorrow. Maybe he saved you or spared you from illness or for death. You remember a way that God has been faithful. You know, every day when I put my shirt on, I I see this scar uh, on my neck that I know I've, I've told you about before, but I rem- every time I see, look in the mirror, I see this scar. I, I, see, I remember how seven years ago, I, the surgeon told me I was 90 minutes from death uh, because of an infection and an abscess that was growing in my throat. And because of the quick thinking of Sarah, my wife, and the steady hands of the surgeon, and because of the, the providence and the timing of God, every day I look in the mirror and I see a historic mark on my body of his goodness. It's like an Ebenezer, a stone of remembrance that reminds me of the goodness of the story of God's acts in my life. So that's one thing we can do is we can look back on the the goodness of God in our own lives. but, But second, and much more importantly, as Christians, we remember the the way God has acted in Jesus. The gospel. The gospel is. Joyful news, good news. I love that the King James translates the gospel as glad tidings. Glad tidings. The gospel is glad tidings. That God loves you. God's for you. That God has saved you. That he's forgiven you. That he, he, he is with you and that he upholds you. That's what we remember. Have you ever been watching a great movie or a, a reading a good book uh, and there's just a moment where it feels like everything is lost. Everything's going to fall to pieces and everybody's going to die. And suddenly there's a great reversal of fortune and everything turns out okay. Just a couple of weeks ago, uh, our family rewatched uh, Star Wars Episode Nine, uh, the, ri- the Rise of Skywalker. And, the, and uh, I'm just going to say what happened in the end because if you haven't seen it at this point, you're probably completely uninterested. Um, so it doesn't really matter. Uh, but there's this great scene in the end where it truly looks like everything is lost. The Rebel Alliance has expended all of their resources and there is no one else to fight. And it looks like doom is certain. 
and you feel it in your gut that it's over. And then suddenly something happens. What is it? Lando Calrissian. Lando Calrissian appears. He comes out from the galaxy, bringing thousands of, of, of ordinary uh, rebel common folk with him. And, and, it, and it completely turns the fortune of the war. And eventually we see that all is not lost. And you know that surge of joy you feel in your gut when that kind of happens? You know, that's a pointer to the gospel. J.R.R. Tolkien, the author of The Lord of the Rings, used to say that all good stories point to the gospel because every great story points to joy. Every great story is basically a mirror of the gospel, that we're on our way to doom, the way to darkness, everything looks lost, and suddenly the hero steps in and leads us to triumph. That's the, the essence of every story that we love, Tolkien says, and the reason we love it is we all, it's pointing to the joy of the story of the gospel. The gospel is, Tolkien loved to say, a myth that has become fact. That all the myths and all the stories and all the movies and all the poems, all of them point to this great story, the story of what God has done to vanquish the darkness of hell and to rescue us from certain death. And so when you are suffering and struggling and your sorrows feel so real, like the realest thing in your life, your story feels so dark, Psalm 126 is inviting to reflect on the story of God, specifically for us followers of Jesus, the story of God's work in Jesus. That in and through Jesus, God entered into the pain and sorrow of our human experience, ultimately to defeat it. That Jesus is the hero who has saved us forever. That is our truest story. The only story that will give lasting joy. And so to fight for joy, friends, means to remember that story every day. To rem not just remember it, to reflect on it, to uh, root yourself in it to remind yourself of the truth of God's love in the gospel, uh, to meditate on the gospel, to, to deeply marinate in it, to remind yourself of God's love for you so that his love increasingly outweighs your trouble. I love what the uh, 19th century bishop J.C. Ryle says. Listen to this great quote. He says, Assurance goes far to set a child of God free from a painful kind of bondage and it ministers mightily to our comfort. It enables us to feel that the great business of life is settled. The greatest debt is paid. The greatest disease is healed. The greatest work is finished. And now all other business, disease, debts, and works are, by comparison, small. And so that's what we do when we remember the gospel and we get assured again of God's love. We fight for joy by remembering what God has done and in the light of his amazing love, all of our troubles, as Paul put it, become light and momentary. When we remember the true story that we are a part of, the story of God's love in Christ. So that's the first thing, we remember. But the second thing that we see that the psalmist does is he doesn't just remember, he anticipates what God will do in the future. First he looks back, then he looks forward, anticipates what God will do. Verse four, look, just as joy builds on the past, joy also, I love, Eugene Peterson says this, it borrows from the future. It looks ahead to the joy that is to come and 
steals that joy and applies it to the present. Joy expects certain things, anticipates that God will miraculously intervene just as he did in the past, he will do in the future. Note two very striking metaphors that this psalm has used. First, verse four, he says this, restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. Now the Negev was a vast desert that was to the south of Israel, and it's actually still there today. There's these deep ravines there that are called wadis. I have a, I have a photo, photo of it, actually a modern photo of it to show you here. So these wadis are, are, are deep ravines and gul- gulches that are caused by wind and erosion. And for most of the year, they are incredibly dry. They're just baking in this hot, hot sun, the most uh, harshest of desert conditions. But every so often in the rainy season, they can suddenly be enormous flash flood. And even within minutes, these gullies can become rushing streams. In fact, I've got a picture here of just a couple of years ago of one that filled up and, and swept away two guys who were just hiking through it because they were just overcome by this rushing river. And what apparently happens is that almost overnight, there can be just this springing up of a garden, flowers and grasses and shrubs springing up overnight in this sudden rush of verdant water. And so what, the, first of all, what the psalmist is saying is that that can actually, that can happen in your life. There could be long, there could be a season of barrenness and, and a time of drought, and suddenly that drought is interrupted by a, a gush, an invasion of God's grace. And, and, and maybe this has happened to you. I remember someone telling me, telling me of, uh, of struggling with infertility, and suddenly there was just a, a shocking invasion of, of God's grace that came with a pregnancy, that this, this kind of thing can indeed happen, a suddenly reversal of fortune, a rush of God's grace in some barren part of your life. Sometimes joy can be like that, but there's a, another metaphor that this psalmist uses as well. He shifts from a meteorological and geological metaphor to an agricultural metaphor in verse five. He says this, those who sow in tears will reap with songs of joy. Those who go out weeping, carrying seed to sow, will return with songs of joy, carrying sheaves with them. So the first metaphor is about sudden influx of joy, but this metaphor is not sudden, but slow. It's the image of farming. A farmer going out day by day, throwing seed, cultivating the land, backbreaking labor, every day, ordinary farming over and over again, not seeing the harvest, yet continuing to sow, knowing that one day patiently the harvest will come. So sometimes, and I would say more often, at least in my life, joy is like that where it comes after many, many years of irrigating the barren ground, often with your tears, patiently believing that one day the harvest will come. You know, for some reason, one of the stories that I think of uh, when I hear these metaphors is the story of who is probably the most famous mother, uh, one of the most famous mothers in history, and that's Monica, the mother of St. Augustine. I don't know if you know much about Monica or much about St. Augustine, but St. Augustine was not only, not always St. Augustine. Before he was St. Augustine, he was crazy, wild Augustine. (laughs) And for 17 years, his mother Monica wept and fasted and prayed for her son Augustine as she watched him self-destruct in orgies and debauchery and everything that he could possibly do to destroy himself and to destroy the people around him. And for 17 years, 
She wept, she fasted, she prayed, she took her tears and she sowed them into prayer. She sowed them into God's love. And then one day, in an orchard, like a sudden rushing torrent of grace or a sudden uh, coming up of God's harvest, Augustine grasped the gospel and his life was changed. Those who sow in tears reap with songs of joy. So here's the point. No matter how deep uh, your sorrow, no matter how profound your suffering, no matter how, how devastating your loss, the promise for every single person who knows Christ is this, is that joy will always be the last word over your life. That sorrow is always temporary. It will always give in to permanent joy. It sometimes will be sudden like a flood. It could be slow like a harvest, but it will come. Some of our joy, often we get big tastes of our joy on this side of the new creation. Sometimes we will see God do amazing things, restore what is lost, heal what is sick, mend what is broken. Some of our joy we will taste in this life, but so much of our ultimate joy will come in the new creation. When Jesus himself restores our world and restores the fullness of joy, everything that you have lost will be regained. All tears will be dried. All burdens will be lifted. All brokenness will be mended. And all death will be wiped away. When you know Jesus, no matter, I'm telling you this, I, I, I am being completely sincere, that no matter how bad your life is, no matter how good your life has been, whether you are 52 or 92, your best days are ahead of you. Your best days, your greatest days, the best season of your life is not behind you, it is ahead of you. Because joy is on the way. And we will awake on the day of new creation and we will be like those who dreamed. Joy will be the final word. So how do you fight for joy? According to the psalm, we look back to what God has done. We anticipate what God will do. I like, I made up a little joy equation here. Uh, look at this. Memory plus hope equals joy. We build on the past of what God has done. We borrow from the future of what God will do. And we apply both of those things to the present and the result is joy. So let me just close with these two quick applications. First of all, I want to urge you brothers and sisters to fight for joy daily. Not There's a lot of counterfeit offers of joy right now that masquerade as joy, but is actually fleeting forms of false happiness. You know, there's a, there, there's a lot of pain and, and, and restlessness that we're all experiencing right now. And there's a whole lot of options out there to temporarily satiate your restlessness through the peddlers of counterfeit joy. Uh, it, could, it could just be uh, vacations, or it could be the next remodeling of some room in your house, or it could be just binging on Netflix. It could be food or alcohol or porn. You know, I don't know. It's a different thing for all of us. But what feels like the pathway to happiness is actually the path to destruction and disillusionment. Real joy comes not through the elimination of tears, but the sowing of tears. Taking your sorrow, pain, and restlessness, owning it, acknowledging it, naming it, and then sowing it 
into prayer, sowing your tears into God's word, sowing them into the open hearts of trusted friends that you can share with, sowing your tears into worship, sowing your tears into the soil of God's love for you. Do not settle in this season, friends, for counterfeit joy. This time of barrenness is an opportunity for you to fight for real joy, to fight for what Janus had, what the psalmist had. Have you looked to the wrong things for happiness, fleeting things, relationships, achievements, career, approval, power, comfort, control. Paul says he has learned the secret of contentment and it is finding his joy in Christ, the only source of lasting joy. The more you look to Christ, the more you depend on him for the deep stability of your soul, the less dependent you will be on everything else that you are tempted to satisfy your restlessness in. So fight for real joy in this season. Let your restlessness drive you to the true source of joy, Christ alone. So fight for joy. And then the last thing I'd say is this. Let's not just fight for our joy. Let's fight for other people's joy. You know, if you're after happiness, you will always avoid the pain and sorrow of other people because you don't want it to infect your manufactured bliss. Real joy will make you a person who doesn't just fight for yourself, but who fights for hope for others. It is not Christ-like to sit back and say, oh, God's working all things for good. Think I'll just sit back and watch and enjoy that. No, to be like Christ is to take the joy that is yours and then to fight for that same joy for others. I'm gonna just keep saying this, fam. There's a whole lot of people in this season that are in pain and distress, and I am telling you, it is going to get worse. Uh, There's a lot of people who are in uh, financial and emotional distress right now. And as towards the end of this month, unemployment benefits end and the CARE Act ends, it's only going to get worse. And let me ask you this, what are we going to do? Will you look away? There's a whole lot of parents that are freaking out right now because of the announcement about fully online school in the fall. And you know, I know that a lot of us are stressed about it too, Sarah and I are, but you know, there's a whole lot of parents in the city who can't work from home, uh, who are single parents, uh, who don't have the money to provide for daycare or a tutor or private school. What are we going to do about that pain? Are we going to look away? I was on a Zoom call this week with, with, with a group talking about these challenging issues of race and a friend who was on the call just began to cry. She was crying tears of sorrow, tears of anger, tears of frustration, saying she is just so tired of trying to explain often unsuccessfully over and over again the pain that she feels of what it's been like to be a black woman in our society. And what do we do with that pain? We turn away? No. All this pain, it makes us want to run, but Christian joy leads us into deeper solidarity with the sorrow of our neighbors. To come alongside them because our happiness does not rest on our circumstances. Our happiness does not depend on the absence of pain. Our happiness rests on the joy of knowing that Jesus is our hope and he has overcome the world and now we want to enter into the struggle for joy for others as Jesus has done for us. So friends, let's wake up this season not just to fight for our joy but to fight for the joy of our neighbors. We are on a journey, friends. This journey is often hard, it's long, it's tedious, it's difficult. But it's a journey of joy. And the reason it is is because we follow Jesus, the joy giver. As it says in Hebrews 12, let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, 
for the joy set before him. He endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Let's fight for joy. Let's pray. Lord, I just confess my own temptation and how I often uh, try to satiate the restlessness of my soul with false counterfeit pleasures and happiness that do not deliver uh, the lasting stability that you want to give to each of us. So help us uh, this week, O oh God, to be those um, who let our restlessness drive us to the lasting joy that can be found only in Christ. Let us look back on what you have done and look forward to what you will do, building on the past, borrowing from the future, and then help us to be missionaries of joy, proclaimers of joy, so that we don't just rest on our laurels and are satisfied with joy for ourselves, but that we come alongside the pain in the world so that we fight for joy for others who are in pain. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.